1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: Hello, listeners. Where were you 20 years ago on 9-11? Most of us have very clear memories of that day.
2: We say most of us because nearly one in three Americans today weren't born before 9-11. But the events of that single day had a profound impact on our lives, our culture, and our politics.
0: On this episode, I interview you, Jim, about your new article for City Journal on the September 11th attacks and conspiracy theories. And we also discuss your work on 9-11 while you were editor of Popular Mechanics.
2: And Richard, I'll ask you about your personal memories of that sunny Tuesday morning reporting from the streets of lower Manhattan right after the attacks on the World Trade Center.
0: Our show is about fixes.
1: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
0: So Jim, let's start this show at the beginning. Three years after the 9-11 attacks, you had been hired as editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics. That was a magazine widely known for covering science and tech, along with do-it-yourself advice. Uh, You were aggressively on the lookout for stories. You had already revamped the magazine somewhat. So what was the link to nine eleven,
2: yeah, I was trying to update the magazine to make it more relevant. It had faded quite a bit over the years, and it was my job to give it a, a jolt of, of energy and, and relevance. And I was looking at the New York Times one day, and I saw an ad for a book. A self published book called Painful Questions. And it was one of many, many books on 9 11 conspiracy theories. And it posited all these factual claims about things that, to the author's view, suggested that the mainstream story we'd been told about 9 11 was wrong. It asked questions like jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel. So, how could that explain the collapse of the towers? Or that the hole in the Pentagon. Wasn't big enough to have been made by a commercial jet, so therefore it must have been a guided missile or something like that.
0: So this ad appears in the New York Times and and, and triggers your interest. How did you follow up? How did you investigate that?
2: You know, my thinking was: popular mechanics for over 100 years have been reporting on how buildings get built, how planes fly, how planes crash, all of these technological uh, questions for a for a mainstream. Uh, audience. And this is one of the most important stories of our day. And these conspiracy theories all came down to, at bottom, some claim about physical reality that we could report on, we could check these things. And if there's any truth to any of them, that was really, really important. But if they weren't true, then it was a service to society to let people know that. And so we assembled a team of reporters, really, in some cases, just professional fact checkers. You, we didn't need to be engineers, we needed to interview engineers, like all good journalists. And the team was led by our executive editor David Dunbar, and he was very rigorous about not letting politics creep into our inquiry. We were going to be have an open mind, we were going to investigate these things, and we were going to completely focus on the physical reality. What happens when a plane crashes into a building? What happens when a building falls down? The ideas that were being used by the conspiracy theorists to say, this mainstream account of what happened uh, just doesn't make any sense. So therefore, it had to be a plot. If we could explain how it did happen, and the, and the explanations were out there, and they were clear, and they had been produced by teams of independent researchers and engineers, if we could help explain that to a mainstream audience, I thought we'd be doing a real service.
0: The investigations for Popular Mechanics were mostly conducted in the first five years after the 9-11 attacks. Much more recently, you wrote a piece for the magazine City Journal about the longer-term impacts of conspiracy theories. In this article, you talk of people calling themselves nine eleven truthers. Who are they?
2: It was a big a uh, movement that was incredibly popular despite getting very little mainstream attention. Uh, they called it the 9-11 Truth Movement. They still do. And their basic argument was that the mainstream account that we've been told about 9-11 was all just a cover-up. It was a giant conspiracy.
0: Who did they think was responsible for what they saw of as a, a massive conspiracy?
2: What's so interesting about these 9-11 conspiracy theories is about the only thing they agree on is that it must be America's fault. These theories were ubiquitous on the far left. You couldn't go to an anti-war march without seeing uh, 9/11 was an inside job. It was all George Bush's fault, or George Bush in a in a you know secret conspiracy with international Zionism, and and then there were a, 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 just a smorgasbord of kind of classic conspiracy theories ideas about why um, America might have wanted to do it. It was part of a secret plan for world domination by some kind of secret power cabal that actually runs the world. And uh, what, what was intriguing about these theories was, was how uh, kind of compelling they could be to a lot of people because they were just like the plot of almost every, every thriller movie you've ever seen you know the the villain is never the obvious person it's always the secret plot of insiders
0: and i assume there was also some similar view on on the extreme right that this was a jewish conspiracy well the,
2: here's the crazy thing the mainstream press barely touched this uh but the, the alternative weeklies and far left press were full of articles about how 9/11 was an inside job but the irony is Some of the real source material, as you say, it came from the far right. Some of the people who were originating these ideas were actually super far right wing, anti-Semitic people who, you know, believe in all kinds of, you know, everything is a conspiracy to them. So people who, who saw themselves as being on the left, they were against the war, they were against George Bush. They thought that they were promulgating a left wing worldview. Uh, But in fact, they were recycling some of the worst anti-Semitic and ultra right-wing ideas. So at a certain point in these kinds of movements, you get to a point where the far right and the far left uh, combine. And, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism, for example, on both sides, at both extremes.
0: Your team at Popular Mechanics did a thorough investigation of many of the claims made by the so-called 9-11 truthers. Your journalists interviewed more than 300 experts. Let's look at two claims, just two, that received a lot of attention at the time. The first was that jet fuel from the impact of the two planes couldn't have been hot enough to melt the steel construction beams of the Twin Towers. Why was that wrong?
2: This idea was one of the early bedrock notions in the conspiracy theories, and that was that jet fuel only burns at about 1,000 or 1,100 degrees Celsius, whereas steel melts at about fourteen or 1,500 degrees. Therefore, the idea that the fires in the Twin Towers from the aircraft impacts would have been hot enough to bring down the buildings, it would have been hot enough to melt the steel, is incorrect. And so that struck me as something that was pretty easy to check. And in fact, this had been investigated at great length by the time we started our report. There had been intensive engineering studies. And what the study showed is that steel doesn't have to melt to lose its strength. It begins to lose strength at about half of its melting temperature gradually. Moreover, when you have hot fires in a building, it does all kinds of other damage. It makes the steel and concrete expand so the floors would start to bow. It makes the floors expand and they start putting pressure on the vertical structures that help hold up the building. The other thing that was overlooked by the conspiracy people was that it wasn't just jet fuel burning in the buildings. When those airplanes hit and they hit damaging multiple floors at once, And so they ignited everything else in the building, too, furniture, carpeting, everything, files full of paper. And it was the heat from those fires over time that damaged the structural integrity of the buildings, you know, in addition to the damage that the aircraft impacts themselves did, which was was not enough to bring down the towers, but it was certainly enough to weaken them considerably.
0: Another claim by the conspiracy theorists was about the hole in the Pentagon in Washington from the Boeing 757 that hit the building. Um, what did they say, and, and why were they wrong about that as well?
2: Yeah, there were a number of different versions of it. In one, people showed a photograph of a small hole in a building in the Pentagon that looks like it was you know, maybe 20 feet across, and said, well, how can an airplane fit in this building? In that version that wasn't the hole that the plane went into that was the hole in one of the inner rings of the pentagon that that uh, some of the landing gear and other components of the plane had punched as they continued on in fact the the hole in the outside of the building is not as wide as the wingspan of a jet because the pentagon is made of incredibly strong thick, reinforced concrete. It is a military building after all. So what they discovered was the wings of the the plane had been sheared off and just the main body of the plane continued on into the building. In different versions of this, they also say, like no evidence of a plane was found at the Pentagon. There was no debris. And in fact, there are many, many photographs showing debris from the aircraft. But most of the aircraft, it penetrated the building. It flowed into the building in this kind of twisted High moving mass, It did an enormous amount of damage. We talked to the people who who literally removed the bodies, who did the forensic work. They did DNA tests on the the remains that they found identified almost all the passengers and hijackers. It, you know, there was enormous amount of work done on this.
0: Four years after the nine eleven attacks in two thousand five, um, popular mechanics published an article called Debunking 9-11 Myths. There was also a later book written by a team of journalists from the magazine. The response to your investigations from some quarters was, was furious. So what happened? What did they say about you or to you?
2: Yeah, it was fascinating, Richard. When we started the project, we thought, okay, all these people are asking these questions. In fact, one thing that conspiracy theorists always say is we're just asking questions. So we thought, okay, well, these are legit. We should answer these questions. People are concerned. And there's no reason we should trust everything the government says. So we put together a team of reporters. On the first wave of the investigation, we had eight journalists working on on this for several months. But when the article came out, immediately everyone who was invested in creating these conspiracy theories just decided we were part of the conspiracy theory. We were working for George Bush and Dick Cheney. Uh, Here, let me read you one thing that sort of captures the tone of these conspiracy people. We got this email. Somebody said, rest assured, puppet boys, when the hammer comes down about the biggest crime ever perpetrated in the history of man, and it will, it will be very easy to identify the co-conspirators by their flimsy, awkwardly ignorant of reality magazine articles Keep that in mind next time you align yourself with evil scum. And then in all caps, you have declared yourself an enemy of Americans and friend of the Mossad.
0: (laughs) You even got death threats, right? Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of comes to the territory, I guess. But it was really intense. And uh, they found themselves very energized by the idea that everything that they know about the world through Normal academic or journalistic sources is a big facade and they're smarter. They're more clued in. They see through the charade and uh, and they know how things really work. So it's a very emotionally empowering worldview for a lot of people. And what's upsetting to me and what I wrote the recent City Journal article about is that I feel like that worldview has spread in the years since 9-11 we see that kind of thinking on the far left and the far right, and it makes people not want to trust their democracy, not feel like they can. there's any shared set of facts that we can sit down and discuss rationally, and it makes them feel that extreme responses are the only appropriate responses to the situation that they see.
0: Part of the attraction of conspiracy theories is that they give a simple explanation If something happens like the pandemic or 9-11 that is a total shock to the vast majority of people, I think there is a rush to try and explain it in fairly simple terms.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's a natural human impulse. I don't criticize anybody for asking questions or not trusting everything they hear from the government. But what we know about 9-11 ultimately isn't just from the government, it's from thousands and thousands of sources, eyewitnesses, Engineering studies. So, what's funny is that people initially might say, I want a simple explanation. But if you follow the logic of 9 11 conspiracy theories, the idea that is it simpler that, that 19 Saudi terrorists were trained to fly planes and managed to get on planes and hijack them and fly them into buildings? Is that simpler? Or that at this point, hundreds of thousands of people associated with the government, other organizations, played a part in this massive cover-up. I mean, if popular mechanics is part of the cover-up, so is the New York Times, so is every, you know, almost every journalist who, who covered this. You were there, Richard, you're, you know, you're part of the cover-up. So, so what starts out as a simple conspiracy theory, like, oh, this is a simpler explanation of reality than what you and the mainstream media think, winds up being impossibly complex.
0: I want to ask you, a couple of final questions about the impact of conspiracy theories. You write that, quote, research shows that once people accept one conspiracy theory, they're more likely to embrace others. And you also quote an author who studied this, who found that Conspiracism is the idea that there's a secret power in the world that that can't be changed by elections, that has evil motivations, and is trying to destroy our way of life. That's very disturbing. And it also is a tremendous barrier to anybody trusting
2: anything. Well, exactly. Uh, And these theories are satisfying for people because it puts them in a position of Feeling like they've got the secret decoder ring to reality. Everyone else is just a sheep. The 9-11 theorists used to like to call ordinary people sheeple, you know, like they're barely even conscious. But we're in the in-crowd. We know what's going on. We've got it figured out. You know, we understand how the world really works. And as yes, as you say, once people buy into one of these, then they typically buy into a bunch of them, it gives people this sense that their life has more drama and more excitement than if they just accepted the the sort of common sense mainstream view of some event like 9-11.
0: A final question, and this is a sad one. What about the cost of conspiracy theories? I was watching a, a new Spike Lee documentary the other day about the, the two great traumas of our times, uh, 9-11 and the COVID pandemic. And one story was about the death of the well-known Bronx rapper, Fred the Godson, who died last year from COVID. He saw the pandemic as a giant conspiracy and didn't take uh, precautions against it. I I wonder about those human costs. Some thoughts on that?
2: I understand why people fall into it, but some people really do wind up getting their lives kind of knocked off track. And they believe some really horrible things about their own country that are really sad. Uh, the writer Jennifer Sr. had a wonderful and harrowing story in The Atlantic about someone she knew who died on 9-11, and a young a young man. And the man's father fell into these conspiracy uh, theories. He talks at conspiracy conventions. He's completely convinced. He spent the rest of his life channeling his grief for his son's death into believing that his son was murdered by our own government. You know, imagine how sad that is. So
0: belief in conspiracy theories could make you much more likely to get sick or die in a pandemic such as the one we're having now. That's a personal cost. But there's also a public cost.
2: It's really corrosive to our democracy if people think that their fellow citizens we're part of some kind of horrible plot. I mean, that's a terrible thing to think about your own country and your own, your own countrymen. And I think we need to recognize how compelling these theories can be to certain people and, and why they're so compelling. And that's why I'm proud of the fact that we actually put journalistic effort into informing people about the facts. And an awful lot of people wrote to us and, or came to talks that I did about our work. And they said, well, you know, i looked into some of this It was so reassuring to see the work you did taking the theory seriously. And then we answered the questions they were asking. When you answer the questions, you say, okay, the reality, our mainstream consensus view of reality actually is correct. You know, you always want to remain curious, but we don't have to go down this rabbit hole. And a lot of people found that really helpful.
0: And if you want to learn more, uh, Jim's fascinating article uh, for City Journal is called Conspiracies All the Way Down. The 9-11 truther movement was a harbinger of today's paranoid politics, and it was published uh, earlier this month. Coming next, you asked me a few questions (laughs) about the morning of 9-11.
2: And we're back. Richard, you know, I think for so many of us who were in New York on that day, their memories are, are, are seared into our minds. Um, I was uptown, I was in midtown, so I wasn't right in the, in the thick of it. But you were um, in your job as a radio reporter. What did you see?
0: I was less than five miles or about 90 blocks north In the newsroom at ABC News, it was 8.45 a.m. on a really beautiful September day. Uh, The the glorious weather in New York of these past few days, Jim, has reminded me again of what it was like then. And when the first plane hit the 80th floor of the North Tower, I'd just been on the air with my third hourly newscast of, of the early morning. And we all thought, at first, that the plane crash might be an accident. But then 18 minutes later, after the second jet hit the South Tower, we knew that the city and the country were under attack. And my boss told me, get my recording gear now and and leave the newsroom and go south to lower Manhattan.
2: And what did you see down there?
0: Well, uh, first, I grabbed a cab, got into a huge traffic jam about 20 blocks south, and then foolishly, perhaps, headed into the subway. And I ended up being stuck on a train for probably about an hour and a half. Maybe it was two hours. It barely moved. And we had no idea that the towers had collapsed because we were in the subway train. And this was before smartphones. On that morning, along with hundreds of other subway passengers, we had to walk through the carriages of maybe 10 or 12 trains ahead of us. It was a long walk uh, underground before we came up the steps of the Chambers Street station near Foley Square. And we were just blocks from ground zero when the towers had collapsed. And the first thing I remember were several men that I saw who were dressed in what had been dark pinstripe suits that were absolutely covered from head to foot in white dust, including their hair. And I found it was just very difficult that morning, Jim, to speak with people. Everyone appeared to be too dazed, too stunned by what was happening. And I tried to record some impressions... But the only way to get to the newsroom, to get in touch with the newsroom, was to find a payphone because nothing was working. There were no taxis, no subways or anything. And the lines outside payphones at that time were very long because they were the only form of communication. So I walked and I walked north, back to ABC about 90 blocks, got back um, hours later. And something I noticed was that as I walked each block, life Became slightly more normal. Um, I think Fourteenth Street, if you know the city at all, was the dividing line between businesses being open and everything being shut. And it was it was finally after a very long day that evening. It was about seven p.m. I was able to drive twenty miles home to Hastings on Hudson, north of the city, where you and I both lived at the time. And it was dusk when I arrived, and I remember the first scene of any joy I'd felt for the whole day, two children playing in a yard, and I just lost it. I, I cried. I was sobbing.
2: I remember that feeling of coming home. I had a similar experience, walked from our offices up through Central Park to 125th Street, where I finally was able to get a train home. And the contrast between what we knew had happened in lower Manhattan and this incredibly beautiful day, and then coming home to our leafy suburb, it just could not have been more stark. And then you continued to report on the story in the, in the weeks after.
0: I had one of the most remarkable assignments of my life. For two weeks, I was just given a blank slate by the editors. They just told me, go out and gather tape or do interviews, just find people to talk to who might make a good story. And I found them. In, in buckets, from the people lining up to give blood at the Red Cross building on the Upper West Side to several remarkable chaplains who went to the pit or the hole at the site of Ground Zero where the emergency workers were desperately searching through the rubble for remains, uh, their recollections of how they helped in some way uh, the workers come to terms with with what they were facing. Those Those accounts were very moving. And, you know, Jim, I, I fell in love with New York City in those days. Um, I previously had held the city somewhat at arm's length for a variety of reasons. It had always struck me, coming from England, that as a, as a noisy, loud, impersonal place. But what I found. In those days was was deeply personal um, I got hugs and handshakes from total strangers and then I remember the flags the American flags that were everywhere draped from the balconies and the windows of apartment buildings all over the city um, you know most people struck me as as strong and resilient and tough in the words of a, of a good friend of mine um, it was a terrible day but a remarkable few weeks after 9-11, there was a camaraderie in the city that that I, I still miss now.
2: This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs.
0: And I'm Richard Davies. Thanks for joining us for our 9-11 show. Uh, this program is produced by Miranda Schaefer and... Uh, Production of Davies Content. We make digital audio podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Um, please check us out on what we do at daviescontent.com. And as always, uh, thanks for listening.
1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.